Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today has been described as the Lord of UK TV, and he certainly has the CV to match. Lord Michael Grade is the television executive who has made his mark on British television in an industry career that spans almost 50 years. From a role as deputy controller at London Weekend Television, he took the reins at the BBC on two occasions as both its controller and chairman, respectively, as well as 10 years as CEO of Channel 4 and executive chairman of ITV. And along the way, he commissioned EastEnders, he poached the Brucey from the BBC, and in so doing, built a reputation for getting the job he wants done. Inspired at a young age by his showbiz family, today the show very much goes on, most recently providing his expertise to a government panel on the future of public service broadcasting. And his tip for life is simply this, just be nice to everyone. Lord Greg, welcome to Changemakers. Let's be nice to each other in this interview. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Fine, you can say anything you like about somebody to somebody, as long as, you're, as, long as you say it nicely. Yeah, that, that is your that's your tip. Um, and, um, you, you know, you've received many tips along the way, Michael, you, you, your biggest inspiration, um, your dad and, and his two brothers. And you, you said of it, work ethic, honourable. I could go on and on. I, I think we should go on and on a little bit because of um, because of that family. Let's talk about the world of Lee Grade, Baron Grade, the dancer with the humorous feet. There's sort of this extraordinary family that, that you grew up in. What was it like? I was very, very lucky. I, I basically had three fathers, my father and his two brothers. Uh, my father's mother, my, that is to say my grandmother, came over from uh, persecution in the Ukraine in about 1910, 1911 with her husband uh, and with two kids, uh, Lord Grey of Elstree and Lord Delfond of Stepney. Uh, and they settled in the Jewish ghetto in the East End. They had two more children. My grandfather died. There was no money, nothing. My grandmother brought up four children. She had a daughter as well. Brought up four children with no, no health care, no welfare. Just The only thing that was free was education. Mm-hmm. And, and she instilled a work ethic into the boys. And they started, Bernie and Lou had dancing acts each uh, on, on the music hall stage but soon realized there was, that wasn't a long-term career uh, and they became agents and my dad followed them. He never went on the stage, but they became agents. They became producers, uh, West End producers, producers all over the UK. Then my uncle and Lou and my father were partners in the creation of ITV mm. uh, in 1955. So that's kind of the family history. I mean, I, I always think that if, if, um, if we were doing a modern musical of your life, it would be the kind of British version of The Greatest Showman. I mean, you know, there is a kind of entertainment that goes right the way through your, your story. Where, where, where does it come from? I mean, where, where, how do you get, how does the family get from, as you say, escaping persecution to being one of the most successful media families in the country? That's a real, I don't think there's any answer to that. I think they, they, what drove them was they, they, they didn't like poverty. Uh, they didn't like uh, having to struggle uh, and what they'd had to struggle with. And they were determined through work uh, to, to move on. And one of the few sectors that's open to people with little education, I mean, they, you know, they went to school, they went to uh, state school and got their education, which was okay, but you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be too excited about their educational and academic qualifications. They went into a sector that was open to anybody, A, being Jewish. So there were certain sectors that were closed in those days to, mm. 
uh, Jewish people. Uh, and the entertainment, you know, it's, it's what we'd call today social mobility. Uh, and, and, and they found they had, a, they had a bent for it. They had a, a taste for it. And I, I mean, I, I read an interview with you actually with, with the Jewish Chronicle where, where you talked about how much you'd loved everything you've done. And because you'd always achieve what you set out to do, this idea that actually you have very strong goals, you're, you're very driven. I mean, that drove the evening standard to, to say that you, you, you make your stellar career sound like one long effortless breeze. But it, I mean, <laughs> I mean what, was it hard work or, or did you just love it and therefore it just seemed to fall into place? I took the view very early on that if you if you want to progress, it's no good keep thinking about what am I going to do next. That's the biggest waste of time in the world. I've seen so many careers falter with quite bright individuals who are so worried about their next move that they forget to do today's job. Right. And I, I came to a very early conclusion, which is the only thing I knew because of the family background, was that if, if you've got a job and you do it, as well as you possibly can and you're good at it and you have some success somebody will come along and spot you and say why don't you you know if you score if you're in division one or the championship and you start scoring a lot of goals you know manchester united and liverpool are going to come and have a look at you you know I'm glad I'm glad he didn't stretch the metaphor by mentioning Charlton Athletic, but maybe we can come back to that later on as your as your club. But but is that the kind of the idea that then that, that you know when they say that saying that life is what happens when you're busy making plans? I mean, is that what happens in a lot of people's careers? They're not they're not keeping an eye on the prize. Do the job, do the job better than anybody else around you or in your sector, and things will happen. People will spot you. You'll you'll you know people are always looking for talent. Mm. And and si simply sitting there plotting your next eight career moves is 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 absolutely destined to keep you exactly at the level you you start. So you don't buy into all of this. Plot your career on the back of a menu or a fag packet or under no circuit. I had no idea I was going into television. Really, I mean, because well, let's go back because obviously you started with the Daily Mirror. I mean that that was. Um, where, where you cut your cut your teeth in terms of um, uh, the sort of news journalism world. I mean, I, I left school at seventeen. I didn't want to go into the family business, which was you know booming at the time. And uh, my dad knew I was passionate about sport. And the Daily Mirror Group were big shareholders in ATV, and they all knew each other. And he got me a ten pound a week job, tra training as a sports journalist at the Daily Mirror, which I did for six years until he was very ill and then I had to move into the business. But at that point, there was a good reason to move into the business. Mm. But, but that was a fantastic education, learning about journalism and how newspapers work. That's, that's helped me a great deal in my career. And presumably, this, this is like Fleet Street at its, at its finest in terms of the print presses and the hum of the noise and the people and everything. If, if I tell you that when I left the Daily Mirror in 1966, the paper was selling five and a quarter million every day, uh, that will give you some idea. Uh, I think they'd uh, like that that circulation now. Well, they'd like half of it. <laughs> I mean, but it's it sort of. I mean, ultimately, t TV became the, the destination, and and where I guess you you made you made your reputation, made your, made your career. I mean, with everything you've just said about career plans in mind. I mean, did did TV always attract though? I mean, was there a? I was brought up in the variety theatre, really, uh, and the basis of the talent agency that, that I was part of when I left uh, the Daily Mirror, which is where I learned the, the business, we were talent agents. 
And most of that was variety and vaudeville. And uh, over my six or seven years doing that, uh, I, I learned, uh, I, I came to realize that the variety theater really wasn't the future. Uh, didn't take a genius to see that. Uh, but I got more and more involved with clients who worked in television, directors, writers, producers, and so on. Mm. and started to have ideas for television shows and started to sell them and London Weekend said to me well save yourself the taxi fare come and come and work for us which I, I, I jumped at. I mean if you were starting your career again today with with everything that's happened to television and and you know the rise of Netflix the rise of Amazon pay TV all, all the rest of it what, what would you make of the industry would you, would you still say it's, it's a place for an ambitious mind to thrive or, or is it actually one of those one of those sorts of parts of the world where actually there's, there's quite a bit of pain to come especially for the established sort of terrestrial television stations well it's it's a business whilst some of it is in decline the old linear broadcast television is in very slow decline it's not rapid decline uh the business is expanding like mad i mean how many how many Never mind how many channels have you got on Freeview or Sky, how many streaming services are there? They all need content, and that's what drives it. And so it is a great business to come into. So you might have been a more entrepreneurial version of yourself because, I mean, you did all the established greats in the, the BBC, ITV, Channel 4. I mean, I'm just thinking if we were looking at a Michael Grade in 2021 at 21, would you be setting up and starting up, do you think? No, I don't think think so I, I rather I, I as an agent you're a salesman you're selling uh trying to sell your clients to people who don't want them basically is is what the job is uh I rather like being a buyer uh when I moved to television to be mm. the person who says yes we're going to do that no we're not going to do that for whatever reason I like being a buyer and 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 I was a salesman in Hollywood for a number of years working in a big production company in Hollywood. And that was a selling job all day long. You're just out pitching, pitching, pitching. Uh, I really like, uh, I like buying. You like buying. I mean, in terms of your, your experience, wh- where was it easiest to buy in terms of your, um, the stations that you, were, that you had oversight of? Where, where could your creative flair and gut instinct, where did it find its, its most sort of uh, natural home? Uh, everywhere is the same, really. I wouldn't distinguish between them. Um, the, uh, the key thing as a buyer was really to be a good judge of the people who are going to execute the idea. You know, who the producer is, who the writer is, who the star is, who the director is. You know, having a really developed sense of who you would trust mm. uh, to buy an idea from. Uh, and that's true whether you're in ITV, the BBC, or indeed when I was at Channel 4. But, but I suppose judgment is so important. I mean, I, I can imagine, you know, somebody pitching you EastEnders going, we've got this show about the East End. It's going to be great. You're going to run it every night. You know, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking, what, what's the sign? What's the signal that you've got a winner? Do you think, is, there, is, it, is it luck and serendipity or is there an art to this? You absolutely do not ever know whether something's going to be a success. What you're paid to know, and you absolutely must know, is what has got absolutely no chance whatsoever of success. And if you can weed those out when you're deciding, then the chances of you having a sort of 51% success rate is much higher. But you've got to know what's got no chance 
whatsoever of working. Is there one that got away? Is there one that you think, I missed that, I should have had it? Uh, well, the show I missed was actually an American buy. Uh, we all went, to, we used to get Hollywood once or twice a year, see all the pilots and decide which shows we wanted to buy. The one I remember with some de- huge amount of embarrassment was sitting in a screening room in Hollywood watching all the pilots with my colleagues. And up came the show. We all we watched the whole thing through for an hour. And we all looked at each other and said, this will never work. We don't want to touch it. Let's move on. And that was The X-Files, which was a, a bit of a miss. That that probably was was quite a big miss. I mean, I wonder, is science fiction your thing? Because you're not a great fan of Doctor Who either, either which I, I, I must say my guest... Um, of, of just this week, as we record, is Mark Gatiss, obviously the actor who writes and loves um, Doctor Who. For you, um, for you, you even put it in Room 101 back in 2002. What, what's the problem? I, I have a blind spot about science fiction, with the exception of E.T. and Close Encounters. Uh, I really have a problem with science fiction. But when I was the controller of BBC One, Doctor Who was running, uh, and the producer came to see me for, to talk about next year, and he said, how many episodes of Doctor Who do you want? I said, well, before I answer that question, I said, have you been to the movies lately? He said, what do you mean? I said, have you seen Star Wars? Have you seen E.T.? Have you seen Close Encounters? He said, yes, of course. I said, I've got news for you. So is your audience. I said, and what you're serving up at the moment, I said, is risible. And I'm not going to do any more. And he was he was shocked. He thought, you know, that it was the just, wobbly sets and all oh, that. it was a joke. What they've done with it recently with the revival, uh, they've given it some filmic and special effects qualities which lifted a bit, but I still think it's a lot of hope. I'm actually really pleased that that on the show that science fiction has turned out to be a bit of a lightning rod category because um, in my own household, my, my wife and I will often differ on this issue because I love science fiction. I, I love the escapism, the creativity. Um, she much prefers more of the kind of murder mysteries or, or whatever. So I usually have to sort of uh, repitch science fiction as having some sort of basis in reality. So I'm glad to know. Um, I'm glad to know it's not just me that has this sort of like culture war over, over, over the genre. There is a great danger as when you've got that much power, you've got all the airtime and all the money to, to make the programmes at your fingertips. And it's kind of the buck stops with you. You have to be very, very careful about your own prejudices and your own likes and dislikes. I uh, was the one show at Channel 4, uh, which I commissioned a pilot because the head of comedy was excited about it. And he came in very excited and gave me the pilot to watch. And I thought it was the biggest load of rubbish I'd ever seen. I was mindless, stupid, idiotic, insulting to the audience half an hour. And that was Father Ted. Uh, <laughs> but I give myself credit for not, for a lot, he, he was so enthusiastic about it, so committed to it. I let him do it. I didn't exercise my own restraint on it. And so, so how, how do you check yourself in that? As, is, do you have a do you have a technique? Because you know, I, I know that there've been other shows, Blackadder and others that you've. Blackadder is a different story, but you have to be you have to be aware that you don't have a monopoly of taste. Right. You have to know that. Mm. Blackadder. I, I'm accused of cancelling Blackadder. I didn't cancel Blackadder. The first series of Blackadder was shot on single camera film up on the mountain in the hills of Wales somewhere. And the producer came to see me about next year again. He said, how many Blackadders do you have? I said, I don't want any. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't want any. I said, if you bring it into the studio with an audience and you find out what is and isn't funny, I'll do as many as you like. 
I said, but I'm not spending any more money on you running around trying to create single camera comedy on a BBC budget. It doesn't work. Mm. Uh, bring it into the studio with an audience. I'll do as many as you like. Mm. And give them their credit, they did. And the rest is history. And save them from themselves, I read, that actually improved the, the scripting and the writing. No question. And, yeah, no no. question. You know, when you shoot comedy on film, single camera film, you don't shoot it in order. You don't, you've got no audience. You don't know what's funny, what isn't funny. You do it in, the, in front of a studio audience. Boy, mm. you find out what you've got. Now, we mentioned, um, you know, the changes that, that have been going on in, in TV in terms of the changes of, of opportunities to watch in lots of so many different ways. And of course, standing within that mix um, is the BBC. Um, in, uh, in August of last year, you talked about them being out of touch um, with, with the rest of the country, particularly as it pertained to Brexit. Um, do you think things have changed in the pandemic or, or do you think your, your view of the BBC remains intact? Well, there's two BBCs. There's BBC Journalism, which is a whole, uh, whole topic on its own. Then there's BBC Programme Making of, of, a, of a general type, uh, which is the rest of the BBC. And uh, it's the journalism that where I have the problem sometimes, not always, but sometimes. Uh, I think they've been caught napping on a number of occasions. Uh, BBC journalism completely missed the Thatcher revolution in the 80s, completely missed it. Uh, they completely missed Brexit. They didn't understand that the, that, the, that the country was so narrowly divided on the Brexit question. Uh, I thought that the journalism was very shoddy at times. They keep wheeling in experts to uh, offer their opinion, which is fine. I have no problem with that. But they never asked the experts which side of the argument they were on. And people select the arguments that suit their point of view. Mm. I'll, be, I'll declare mine. I voted eventually. I wasn't a, a, a fanatical Brexiteer, but I did vote for Brexit in the end on the issue of sovereignty. Um, but when it came to the last election, where Boris got an 80-odd seat, majority, seat majority, you could feel the sharp intake of breath at the BBC who never mm. saw it coming because they, they weren't in touch with the grassroots, you know, with the red wall, the blue wall, They're just completely out of touch. What about the pandemic? Do you think, do My problem with their coverage of the pandemic uh, is that the journalism at the beginning, particularly at the, in the early press conferences, was extremely uh, aggressive completely gotcha you said two weeks ago it would be, there would be 129 this and two now it's only 105 and it was all got there was no sense of an understanding of just how complex and difficult this was now it's perfectly proper for the bbc to be questioning the government uh, on all of its policies etc etc but to do it from a position of, of aggressive questioning and trying to catch them out on it, it's childish. It adds to no one's understanding. And mm. what we've got at the moment is wall-to-wall -wall problems. I've, I've, I've yet to hear any interviewer say, well, that's the problem. What is the solution? What mm. do you think? Anybody can go on TV and, and point to all the problems. We know what the problems are. But with all of that frustration, you'd still keep the licence fee? Not necessarily. I would support the license fee absent. Uh, you've got to school back. What's the BBC for? 
what do you want it to do? Then you work out how to pay for it and how, how, how it should be delivered. So I'm at the moment, we're in the early days of this review of public service broadcasting, uh, this group with the government. Uh, at the moment, I'm agnostic. Uh, I'm open to a suggestion uh, that takes that, that, that is better than the license fee. But you've got to first work out what it is you want to deliver mm. and then work out how to pay for it. And, and what do you make um, of the arrival of News UK as a new channel, which which some are branding as a potential UK version of Fox News? Is, does that does that add to the mix, or does that um, or does that worry you? I mean, especially when you think about you know speaking truth unto nations, peace unto nations. I mean, is that is that the complete counter opposite of that? The only reason we have impartiality rules in the media in this country is that media was a very uh, media spectrum on which to broadcast was a very limited resource and it belongs to the people, it belongs to the nation. And if you want to use those resources, you, you're in a very, very powerful position and therefore you shouldn't be like a newspaper owner uh, using the public's airwaves in order to push your point of view of the world. That has changed now. There is no... You know, you and I could start a television station tomorrow and get access. Uh, it, there's no uh, there's no barrier to entry today like there used to be. I'm totally in favour of having uh, uh, partial news as long as at the core you have got some competition, BBC, ITV, Channel 4, whatever, with impartial, mm. uh, impartial news, as long as there's a bedrock. I mean, we are talking today on, uh, you know, today's the day of the inauguration of a new U.S. president, um, Joe Biden. Um, the the White House and the Capitol is currently um, completely zoned off like like a, like a war zone. Um, a lot of people will say, well, this is partially because we're living in a world of peak Fox News influence in terms of just the the level of you know, visceral debate or, or, or visceral accusation um, and that, that, that it is precisely the problem that, that, that in a way there is no control. I mean, I, I, do, you, do you accept that at all? I mean, David Dimbleby did a very good series on, on the, which he called the Sun King, the, the rise of the kind of Murdoch empire, which I thought the most interesting thing was just how much influence Fox News gave compared to the newspapers. I mean, this is, these, these are super weapons, these stations, are they not? Yes, but there is a much bigger question behind this. Fox News would not be a success unless it was tapping into uh, a real feeling in the, in the American electorate. And we've seen that played out over the last four years and in the last few weeks in Washington. There is a clear sense that the political establishment... Why was, why was Trump elected? Trump was elected because he wasn't a, an established an establishment political figure. And the electorate is saying to Washington, you know, you guys are out of touch. You don't know anything about our lives. You know, you're, you're all on this kind of woke, uh, elitist, uh, liberal kick. Uh, but that ain't putting food on my, on, on my kid's table. And that's not getting me a job. And it's, it, it, the whole thing is, is a manifestation, in my view, we could have the same thing here very easily, is a manifestation of a disenchantment and a feeling by by the electorate that that, that the politicians have lost touch with them. So, so that, but that's that's a, I suppose a very different view about what a, 
a new station does in terms of providing a voice rather than providing information. Why do you re- why do you read the Daily Mail or the Guardian? You read it because because it it has the same view of the world as you do. And in American television, there was there was no news that that reflected the, the, the kind of worldview of, of a heck of a lot of people in America. And Fox gave them a voice. What, what do you what do you make of Donald Trump's ban on them um, on on Twitter? This is I, I'm not sure I know what the answer is here. One, it, it, it's quite clear that the the, the Twitters and, 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 and the Facebooks and so on have got to take some responsibility for what they publish. That's not to say that they are publishers. They're somewhere between a common carrier, like a telephone, and and a publisher. They're somewhere in between. There is a, there is a definition of these people which will... will create some form of regulation. Uh, the first thing I would do, I would, I would expect them or require them never to publish anything anonymously. They, they, they need, I don't even mind if, they would, if, if, if I write something and I say to Twitter, I'm Michael Grade, but I don't want you to publish my name, but I'm giving you my name. This is the source of this tweet. I think that would that would go some way mm. to sorting it do, out. Do you think the horse has bolted though with organisations no, like no, Twitter? Do no. you think that they are reformable in terms of the way that they... they have to be regulated? They have to be regulated. It's finding finding the right balance between censorship, which we don't want, uh, and and responsibility. Let's not forget, however, that there are laws in this country about incitement. Uh, you know, incitement to, to uh, an affray and, and race hate and so on. And so the law is there to be pursued. If I, you know, if I make some violently anti-Semitic tweet, uh, that's race hate. I can be prosecuted and I should be prosecuted. So it doesn't mm. always only fall on the, uh, on, on the, the platform. Do, do you think, you know, if you were, I'm just thinking, if you were taking one of those big jobs again, I mean, it's, it sounds to me like along the way you had a lot of fun um, with what you were doing. Um, we had Rory Bremner as a guest. He was regaling us with the story of him phoning up the cabinet and impersonating John Major and actually persuading them that he was and that you had to be called in. In terms of where you sit today, looking at a career in television, do you think it'd be as much fun for you if you were doing it all again? Do you think you could be as irreverent and as and as sort of um, boundary pushing as, as you were back? Oh in- yes, oh yes. There's nothing to stop you. Uh, it's high risk, and the, the market in, outside of the BBC, where there's competition for revenue, whether it's subscriptions or advertising, or whatever, uh, the competition is fierce. And that tends to be a damper on taking high risk. And that's, that's my big worry, mm. is, is the element of risk. That's sort of where, that's, to me, well, that's one of the roles of the BBC, well, is well, to I, take well, risks. I, do you like, I was going to say, the risk culture. I mean, I, I noted you're, you're, you're watching Billions during the, um, during the lockdown. I mean, you know, a, a, show, a show about risk entirely. I mean, I mean, is that what you want to see in television? More, more? No, it's not a show about risk. It's, it's, it, uh, let's take a, a, a recent example. If you're a, a very commercial advertiser-supported or subscription-supported company, would you have taken a chance with, with an un, unknown Phoebe Waller-Bridge and, and done Fleabag? 
taking a chance on her? I don't think so. You'd, you'd wait for someone else to take the risk and then you try and buy her, you know. That's kind of how the market works. So it's, it's risk that I've built my career on taking huge risks. I mean, one of the biggest risks we ever took was a thing called the Big Breakfast, mm. which everybody said to me afterwards, oh, you've just gone commercial, Mike. I thought it didn't feel like being commercial, you know, when we took the 12 million pound risk on commissioning that show out in the house in the East End, you know, it didn't feel, didn't feel like a commercial certainty, to certainty, but I knew it had a chance. Michael Grade, Lord Grade, thank you very much uh, for joining me on, on Changemakers. And I think, you know, what a great way to finish it, talking about those stories about the risks you take um, in life. And I think being nice to everyone uh, along the way. And it's been a story of making it until you make some more, never compromising on values and always striving to achieve goals. I think that's given Michael the taste for television that does make this country tick. He's picked plenty of winners um, along that journey. And for more of those unafraid to make their voices heard, do join me next time on The Next Changemakers.